You're listening to the sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our Christmas study as we focus on Mary's story through a series we entitled, When God Was Born. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Luke, and get ready to study God's Word together. Hi, everybody. It's great to see you. It's great to uh, be able to study God's Word with you. If you're new here, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the opportunity to share God's Word with you. You're going to need a Bible today, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. You just heard that read, but uh, we want to take a deeper look at what's being said there. I think that you'll be deeply encouraged by it. We are uh, engaging in a new series just leading up to Christmas, sort of an Advent series. We're going to be looking at some of the passages in what we call the birth narratives of Luke. So Luke's gospel, chapter uh, one and two, has some descriptions about what happened prior to the birth of Jesus. And at the birth of Jesus, we learn an awful lot about God and our relationship with him in those passages. And so we just want to have a look at that in the next uh, few weeks. If you have a Roman Catholic background, what I'm about to read to you will sound very, very familiar. Uh, If you don't, you uh, might have heard it from your Catholic friends. Uh, It it is a very famous prayer. It's this kind of thing that if you went to confession, that a Roman Catholic priest would tell you to go and say as a kind of penance for what uh, you've confessed to him, what sins you've confessed to him. Here's the... Here's what's called the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. You know, the Roman Catholic Church has a very interesting view on uh, Mary, you know, the, the mother of Jesus. Uh, she is a remarkable woman, but they have taken her and uh, turned her into something a, a bit more than just, than just remarkable. They, they believe that Mary was immaculately conceived. There's something a lot of Protestant people don't realize is the immaculate conception is actually a doctrine about Mary, not of Jesus. Doesn't mean that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe that Jesus was immaculately conceived, meaning that he was born without sin. They do believe that. They also believe, though, that Mary similarly was born without sin, She was preserved from all the stain of original sin from the first instant of her conception. That is a doctrine that was established officially in 1854. See, the Pope, as the uh, living apostle of Christ, gets to add to what the scriptures say because he is believed to be an apostle. And so when he speaks ex cathedra, meaning from the throne, officially as the Pope, he gets to add to the Bible. So his words, when he establishes a doctrine like the Immaculate Conception, can be added to your Bible, according to the Roman Catholic Church. And in 1854, that is what they officially did. It's not the only time they added something about Mary to uh, the scriptures. At the end of her life, Mary was believed to be assumed body and soul into heaven. That's called the doctrine of the Assumption. So if you know your Bible, Elijah was brought up into heaven, body, and soul, and similarly, Mary experienced that. You say, but where in the Bible, like I said, the, the, the Pope has the authority to, to say what's in Scripture, and so he added that in 1950. It's not that the church didn't believe that for centuries. They actually did, when I say the church, I mean the Roman Catholic Church believed that for centuries, second and third century. They believed that that was the case, but officially the doctrine was added to what's taught and authorized by the church in the scriptures in 1950. She's believed to be the co-redeemer She participated with Christ in the painful act of redemption. She is the co-mediator to whom we can entrust all our cares and petitions. In fact, there's pictures of Mary at the right hand of Jesus. So Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God, 
And therefore, he's the mediator to God. But if you want to have a mediator to Jesus, then Mary is that person. That's why there's so many prayers that are are given to Mary, even the one that was stated just a minute ago. God has exalted, according to the Roman Catholic Church, Mary as queen of heaven and earth. And because of that, she's to be praised with special devotion. Now, if you're Protestant which our church is, hope that's not a shock to you. If you're Protestant, historically, a lot of us, and us, I mean the Protestant church, has read that and said, rubbish. Jesus alone is the mediator between man and God. Jesus alone suffered on the cross. Mary... She's fine, but she's not the queen of heaven. She's just a woman that God chose to do this particular task. In fact, sometimes when you listen to Protestants talk about Mary, it's kind of almost denigrating. It's like, oh, come on. You're like Mary, and you're like Mary, and you're like Mary. She's just another woman. Which, of course, raises the question, like if you think about these things, raises the question, right, so what does the Bible teach about Mary? If we, if we were going to go to the scriptures and we were going to say, right, so what did the early church establish about Mary? How, how is she described in the Gospels, for example? Would we say that she's just another woman? Would we say that she's queen of heaven and earth? Or something in the middle there? What I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to ask that question, how is Mary portrayed in scripture? I'm going to give it away. I don't think she's the queen of heaven and earth, but she's pretty great. She's pretty great. Three things that we learn about serving God from Mary in Luke chapter one, verses 26 to 38. I think she actually is a model for us being held up by Luke, the author of what it means to be a a fully formed, excited disciple of Jesus Christ, what it looks like to follow God in all of the challenges that we face in our lives. She's held up actually probably in Luke's gospel as the first great disciple. So we're gonna learn a few things from her. Three things I said, number one, Where God places, he graces. Where God places, he graces. By that I mean that we've all been placed in a particular circumstance in our life and when we've been placed there, the Lord has actually believed something to be true about you and me, a grace that he's shown us in order to do that thing. Let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter one, verse 26. In the sixth month, you're like, oh, What's that? Sixth month. Well, okay. The last story, right? The first story actually that Luke starts to tell in his gospel is about this old man named Zechariah. He's a priest. He has his turn to go up to the temple and perform those priestly duty, which means, of course, he wins actually kind of the lottery and he gets to go in and serve the Lord in inside like the holy place in the temple. So usually when someone goes and does that, it's a high honor. It's very serious. If you make any mistakes in there, there's a real good possibility that the, that, that the Spirit of God will kill you because God is holy and you must do things properly in front of him, especially when you're near the Ark of the Covenant. So he goes in there. He's going to perform the priestly duties. He's in there, and all of a sudden this angel shows up right next to him, which of course would probably freak you out if you knew that if you did anything wrong, an angel might show up and kill you. So the angel shows up, and he's like, And the angel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. I've actually come here to tell you that your wife, your old wife, and she was quite old, and he was quite old, your old wife, she's been barren all these years, but she's now pregnant with a a son. And he's going to be a great guy. He's actually going to go before the Messiah. He's going to announce the coming of of the deliverer of Israel, this deliverance that Israel's been praying for and waiting for all these years, your kid is going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the one who pronounces and heralds that the king is coming. Cool, right? Zechariah's like, I don't know if you understand this, 
but I'm kind of past my due date. And my wife is really, like she's curdled milk at this point. There's no way that she is going to have a baby. And the angel's like, man, because you opened your mouth and you doubted this whole thing, you're gonna have your mouth shut for the next long time until this baby is born. Of course, everybody outside of the holy place is like worried because why is he taking so long? <laughs> you know, maybe he's dead. Anyway, he comes out, he can't talk, and they're like, what happened, what happened? He can't talk. But sure enough, the angel's word came true, and Elizabeth, his wife, his old barren wife, is pregnant. Now listen, everyone in the room who knows anything about the Bible at all is like, that sounds kind of familiar. Because Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was an old woman and Abraham was old and God gave them a baby. And that was the beginning of God's great work with the people of Israel. And so this is a big moment. Just like that was a huge moment. This is a big moment. So for five months, she hides herself away. And then in the sixth month of what? Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. <laughs> okay, I, Nazareth is an interesting uh, spot historically. And the reason I say that is because Nazareth was about as unimportant a location as you could possibly imagine. There was actually a story about Nazareth in the scriptures where there's a bunch of disciples who are trying to convince their buddy Nathaniel to come along. Hey, come along. We found the Messiah. He's amazing. His name's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, I don't think he's probably as great as you say, because can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Peoria? Can anything? Now, that's probably not the right comparison because Peoria is known. But we don't have any evidence at all of Nazareth in some of the other documents that were floating around in the first centuries. Nobody talked about it. It was a nothing burger. So I was looking on the map and I was only kind of new to the area. I'm looking on the map and going like, what would be compared to Nazareth? And I came up with Honey Creek. Do you know where that is? And you're like, no, right, right. I'm from Honey Creek. Okay. From God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. He came to a virgin. Now, of course this does this does mean that she had had no sexual experience. It means more than that, though. It usually indicates the, the, the age of a young woman. It was usually about ages 12 to 14. Okay, this was the marrying age. As a good Jewish girl, she was a virgin, young maiden. Um, but in your mind, what you need to be picturing about Mary is not some seasoned young woman, some 22-year-old who is all, you know, with it and has some experience in education, you need to be thinking about whatever 13-year-old girl you know. My daughter turned 13 in October. So God just came to someone like Sophie. She was a virgin a 13-year-old, and she was betrothed. She was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. That language of, of betrothal, okay, in our day, you get engaged, right? You have, you have the, the guy, he comes along, I love you, and he gets on his knee, and there's the sunset, and the, you know, in the trees, and he's planned it for a week, and I love you, and oh, you big hug, and Instagram sees all of it. That's the way that it works in our day. But it, it, our engage, and the engagement might last, I don't know, three months to like four years. It, it's whatever. It's whatever works because you want to get married when the weather's good or when the snow falls or whatever. And so you plan it according to that. So different than the way they used to plan marriings, mar uh, weddings in those days and marriages. Uh, the way you got married in those days was actually because of a contract that your fathers would have with each other. 
And it was not usually done for love. It was usually done for practical reasons like, hey, he has land, we have land, together we have more land. He's got an army, we've got an army, together we have a bigger army. So the father of the bride would go, or the father of the, uh, the groom, sorry, would go and he would find a father of a bride and he would say, hey, we wanna make a deal, I got a son, you got a daughter, why don't we merge our families, our clans together and we will get them married. Great, it's a deal, shake hands. The father of the groom will then pay the father of the bride some money. It's called the bride price because you know, her family is going to lose her as a worker, as a daughter, and she's gonna be transferred over to the husband's family now. She's gonna live there, she's gonna serve there, she's gonna work there. So they need to have some financial recompense for this. So they do, they pay this bride price, that's a negotiated, and then they get engaged. But the engagement was called a betrothal. They get betrothed. Betrothal was a one year engagement. But they lived together without sex. They played married for a year, but no sexual intercourse at all. In fact, if you had sexual intercourse during the year, it was the greatest shame. And the whole thing could get called off. And the thing being called off is just now, oh, my heart is broken. It was a, like your whole families were devastated. The deal was off. The future was in peril. Big deal. Big deal. So she's betrothed. 13-year-old girl in her engagement to this guy named Joseph that their parents had worked out. He's from the house of David, which means he's from a royal line. So she's doing pretty well here. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel, Gabriel, he came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. <laughs> this, wait a minute. Okay, so let's just recap. Uh, she's from nowhere, right? Nazareth. She's a 13-year-old no one. She is totally insignificant, is not known basically by anyone anywhere. She is caught in this system where she's going to be married to this guy. If, if the angel doesn't come to Mary, no one ever speaks about her. No one ever knows about her. She's just another normal little Jewish girl. She knows this about herself. She understands. If you came to Mary and you asked her, hey, how important are you? She'd be like, <laughs> not. But an angel from the Lord shows up to her and the first words out of her mouth is, greetings. <laughs> oh, favored one. This is a past tense, this word favored. You've been favored. In the past, God has favored you. It's a passive and the understanding is that God has favored you, Mary. And in her mind, in my mind, if you were standing there in your mind, you would be like, really? Like at what point? At what point? Can I, I just want to pause here for a minute. <laughs> Look, you and I are not, we're not Mary. Um, God has not, I, as far as I know, nobody in the room has been visited by the angel Gabriel on their way to church today. Nobody in the room has had an angel show up and say, hey, you're highly favored. This was a special instance regarding the birth of the son of God. So let's be careful in our comparisons to Mary. But, but the idea that God sees Mary differently than Mary sees Mary is directly transferable to you and I as disciples of Jesus. See, the biggest problem in your life and my life is that God sees us one way and we see ourselves another. And most of the New Testament is trying to, most of the apostles when they write are trying to convince the people of God who they really are so they'll live like who they really are, not just how they think they are. 
God wants to change your mind and my mind about what's actually true about you. The way that he sees it, which is the only true way to see it. He's trying to renew your mind so that you can say, I'm actually a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I'm actually a son of the living God, a daughter of the living God. I'm actually an heir of Christ. And even though my whole world might look like I'm totally insignificant and there's nothing going on in my favor, I actually have been highly favored by, by God. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove this to you, okay? From scripture, I'm gonna prove this to you. Um, let's take a passage like Romans chapter 8, 14. For all, the apostle Paul writes, for all who are led by the spirit of God, this is not a statement about some special group of people. Are you led by the spirit of God? Because I'm led by the spirit of God. You should have this experience so you could be led by the spirit. No, every Christian is led by the spirit of God. If the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you are led by the spirit of God. And all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Well, what do you mean, Paul? All right, let me explain. Four, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Just think about this image. See, the thing about adoption that's really interesting that makes it different than natural birth, you know, having your own natural kids, is that you're stuck with your natural kids. They got your DNA, man. They, you didn't have much choice over that. You ever notice that your kids are as bad as you? You're like, man, that stinks. An adopted kid, an adopted kid is chosen, right? Like you didn't need to choose them. You didn't need to adopt. But you chose. You chose to adopt and then you chose to adopt that child. Yes, you have been, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. That God could have passed you and me by, but he didn't. He saw you and he said, that one is mine. And he brings you or me into his home, doesn't treat us like some second-class citizen. He did, you don't sit at the separated, you know, half-children's table. You sit at the family table because you've been adopted as sons. By whom now we cry, Abba, Father. God, he's not distant. He's not like, yes, I did this as a legal act. Come into my home, sit at the end of the table and do not talk to me because I am the high father. Nope. We call him, Abba means daddy. We're dearly loved, adopted children of God. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are his, the children of God. So the first thing you need to be thinking about yourself is what's true is that you're a son, that you're a daughter of the living God, chosen, blessed as his child. And if children, then you're what? <laughs> you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Have you ever thought to yourself, oh man, I don't know if I'm ever gonna make it with finance and whatever. Dude, you realize how rich your dad is, right? This guy right here, he got a lot of money. He does. Well, what does that have to do with me? Um, you're an heir. You're an actual heir of God. If you're an heir of God, and that means that you will receive all that is God's, you currently are part owner of it, but when there will be a moment where you receive every last bit of that kind of thing, I'm not sure people who are like that should worry. Your heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So do you, you see what he's basically saying here? You are a magnificent son or daughter. You don't deserve it, but he has grabbed you, brought you into his house, made you his own, and now you have become part of the whole family and you will receive all the blessings that are due an actual son of God, Jesus. And the actual son of God are now gonna be, gonna be yours. Do you guys ever seen the movie Princess Diaries? Few of you, all the women. Yes, I have seen that movie. Princess Diaries is this really clever little movie. It's, a, it's actually really fun to watch. Um, it's about this girl who is just a nerd in her American high school, and she's just doing the American high school. You get teased. She doesn't know what's going on in her life. She ends up finding out that she is actually the daughter or the granddaughter of a, of a, a queen in another country. So the queen sends her emissary, goes and gathers this girl up. And the whole movie is basically about how this little, this daughter 
comes to realize that she's actually this wealthy. She goes into the palace and she's like, this is mine. This is mine. Like, this is who I am. It totally transforms everything about the way she sees herself. And, you know, we read that, we watch that, and we finish, and we go, isn't that sweet? I wish it were true. It's true! Well, why don't I feel like it's true? Because you don't think about it enough. Like, seriously, what would happen to you if you started to realize that you are actually what God says you are instead of what you feel like you are all the time. If you realize that you are an heir of the living God as opposed to just a nobody from nowhere doing nothing, that he chose you and did not pass you by. You feel passed by, but he didn't pass you by. You are his. You are his. What would happen? Well, I, I, okay, so when I was in... Um, New Zealand years ago, I was 29 years old, and I had become the teaching pastor of this church there. And as the teaching pastor, it was my responsibility to speak at this yearly conference called Winter Bible School. New Zealand is not a huge place, and there's not that many Christians, but this Winter Bible School was kind of known as the conference in the North Island of New Zealand. It's about 80 people who attend, which is big for New Zealand. They all come and they stay there for a week and there are a number of different speakers, but the speakers go through books of the Bible or sections of scripture. You know, one, so four speakers will go through sections of scripture each day. And I was, you know, the guy who was supposed to go through and I wrote a master's thesis on a Romans chapter seven, which is a highly debated passage of scripture about what it means. So I came along and I was like, I'm gonna teach about Romans six to eight, which is what this is in. Anyway, I show up, and the first thing I hear is there's a guy named Jack there. Jack was famous. He used to actually hold my position at the school I was in, and he was well-known as being like the kind of grand poobah, the local pope. And what Jack said, everyone believed. Jack came along because he had particular viewpoints about the passage I was speaking about, and it became very apparent to him early on in the messages that his viewpoint about Romans 7 and my viewpoint about Romans 7, not the same. So Jack would sit in this room over on the side, and he'd be surrounded by his little cadre of, of, of men, and they would all, seriously, all of them cross their arms while I was teaching and go, no, no, sorry, New Zealander, no, no, no. Like, I was so put off. Here, I'm 29 years old, fresh out of seminary, this old, you know, like, seasoned Bible teacher who everyone calls JB. It's over there. He, the only thing he said to me, he came up to me afterwards, is, I hope tomorrow is better. <laughs> Didn't sleep that all night. I was laying awake at night going, how did I get involved in this? This is ridiculous. God, I just wanted to teach the Bible. And then you throw this guy in the middle of the room. Anyway, because I was so worried, I was going over my notes and I was reading, you know, Romans 6 and 7. And I got to this section in Romans 8 that I just read to you. And all of a sudden the words just going to pop out of the page. And I started thinking, wait, wait a minute. I'm actually a son of the living God. Like I'm a son of the king. I'm a prince. Not only that, but God has called me in this moment to come and proclaim his word to these people. I am actually a herald of the king. His words are in my mouth. I'm going and I'm going to proclaim the truth to them. Why in the world, Jeff, are you so worried about this? You know, like a son of the king who's a herald of that king being sent into a place to proclaim the good news does not go in and go, well, I'm just, I'm sorry I'm here today and I'm only 29. No, they go in and I'm like, mm, I'm ready to go. Here we go, you know. And I did. <laughs> Seriously. The next day I show up, a little bit of swagger, right? And I came in and I opened the passage and I was, and Jack was sitting over here and I was like, you know, come on, you want some? I'm right here. Now, maybe that's not the right way to handle it. Felt good. But you do see what happened. Like, seriously, I just want you to think for just a minute. What, how, how would it change the way you act? How would it change the way you think? You've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship. How would it change the way you worry? How would it change the way you 
boldly go in front of others and proclaim the good truth of God? How, how would it change the way you live every single moment? Where God places, he graces. Also, where God places, he enables. You know, uh, this verse that I just read, he came to her, so the angel came to her, and he said, greetings, you know, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So the angel comes, you're highly favored by God. I know you don't feel like it, Mary. You're highly favored by God, have been highly favored by God. Also, you need to know the Lord is with you. Why does he say this? Well, actually, if you trace across the scriptures, every time, every time God comes to a person, just a normal everyday person, and asks them or calls them to do a particular task for him that's going to be a challenge for them, he always reaffirms it with his presence. He always says to them, hey, the thing you're going to be going into is going to be very difficult. And yes, I have called you to do it, but you need to know above all things, I am with you. I'm not standing on the porch waving, have fun storming the castle. No, you, I'm with you, man. Now, I could go everywhere in the Bible to try to show you this. There's so many examples, but let's just pick a few. Uh, Moses, the burning bush, God, God calls him and says, you're going to go and you're going to speak to Pharaoh on my behalf and tell him to let my people go. And Moses is like, oh, come on. Look at all the people around you. You pick anybody. You pick me. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Dude, this is going to work out. I'm God. I'm with you. Uh, Judges, chapter 6, a little guy named Gideon, who is not a very uh, brave dude. The Midianites have been coming and stealing all of their stuff, and he's down there hiding away from them and trying to thresh his wheat so that they don't see it and don't come and steal his wheat. Very, very scared. Angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you. Oh, mighty man of valor. That sounds similar, right? He's not a mighty man of valor, but he is. You know, the way that God views this guy is different than the way he views himself. The Lord is with you. And because the Lord is with you, there's going to be some mighty man of valorness coming your way. And the Lord turned to him and said, go, into the, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of the Midian. Do not I send you? And he said, come on, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I'll be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. The apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18, he's in the city of Corinth. He's preached the gospel there. There's a bunch of Jewish people want to kill him. Some Gentiles have believed, but his life is under threat once again. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. Which of course you'd be tempted to do. Keep going, Paul. For I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my, my people. We could do this all day. Joshua has got to go in the promised land. He said, be strong and courageous. I'm with you, wherever you go. <laughs> all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, says Jesus in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of every nation baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. See the pattern? Everywhere, everywhere. So, so you and I are regularly placed by God in challenging situations. And the Lord's word to you 
when you're going to face those challenging situations in his name, I'm with you. In fact, I think he's with you in a way that even these guys, the spirit of God actually dwells in you. Wherever you go, the Holy Spirit goes, empowers you. I'm with you. And that's supposed to change everything for us. Uh, last year, there was a, a, a guy who, who blogs a lot. I've read his blog years and years, for years and years. His name's Tim Challies. He's a Canadian. Uh, his, his son died a couple years ago in horrible circumstances. And he was on his way to, to um, see his son, his dead son now, figure out what had happened. And he kept the people online in, in the loop by penning these words. He wrote, uh, in all the years I've been writing, I've never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself. My dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. Nick was playing a game with his sister and fiance and many other students when he suddenly collapsed, never regaining consciousness. Students, paramedics, doctors battled valiantly but could not save him. He's with the Lord he loved, the Lord he longed to serve, and we have no answers to the what or why questions. Yesterday, my wife and I cried and cried until we could cry no more, until there were no tears left to cry. And then later in the evening, we looked each other in the eye and we said, we can do this. We don't wanna do this, but we can do this. This sorrow, this grief, this devastation, because we know we don't have to do it in our own strength. We can do it like Christians, like a son and daughter of the father who knows what it is to lose a son. So we traveled through the night to get to Louisville so we could be together as a family and we ask that you remember us in your prayers as we mourn our loss together. We know there will be grueling days and sleepless nights ahead, but as for now, even though our minds are bewildered and our hearts are broken, our hope is fixed and our faith is holding. Our son is home. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Look, I know that everyone in the room has had, uh, one of the things that's true every week about church is that people walk into the doors with a, a baggage, with things, actually circumstances and situations that we feel so ill-equipped to face. And we tend to be worried about what's gonna happen. Some of those things came up this week. They made me, they've been coming up for the month. We were surprised. It's life, you know, you get thrust into providences and challenges that you don't face. Some are small, some are big, but they're all worrying. Some people, it's just they're trying to figure out how to parent their kids, no matter what stage their kids are at. They're not sure how to make that work. How do you get them to sleep? How do you get them to obey? How do you get them to love Jesus? They're just worried to death that this isn't the thing that's gonna, and that's what the Lord has called them to. It's the thing that they're set right before them. Some of you, it's in a situation with your spouse. Your marriage is in various circumstances and situations that you're just not even sure how the what the next thing's gonna be and how it's gonna work forward and yet you find yourself here looking into kind of an abyss of the future and you're like, man, I do not have any idea how this is gonna work out. For some of you, it's like that at work. Others, you know, you're just sad. You lost something, somebody, something that you had your heart dearly set on. You had a friend, a cousin, a child, a parent, and they're gone. You don't know how you're gonna walk forward in this grief. The repetition in the scriptures regarding the presence of God in your particular calling right now is meant to fuel your 
boldness right now. That you can do it. Because you're not the one who's going to do it. Where God places, he graces. Where God places, he enables. Last one, where God places, we submit. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. In fact, if I could get you to memorize one, it'll be this one right here, especially the end of it. So the angel has come to Mary. He has said to her, you are favored one. The Lord is with you, which are both very surprising to her. That's why she's like, she ponders, what in the world could this greeting be? Because I don't feel like any of that. And then the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, you have again, you found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive, this is a prophecy, he's telling her what's going to happen ahead of the time. You will conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne, notice the language here, of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. He's a king coming with his kingdom, invading the kingdoms of this world, but he's going to win the battle, and his kingdom, like No other will last forever. Not like the United States, which will come to an end. Not like England, which came to an end yesterday, praise God. And not like like any other nation. This kingdom will last forever. And Mary said to the angel, okay, but how am I this going to be since since I'm a virgin? She's not doubting him. She's not saying, well, that's not going to happen. She's saying, but the mechanics, right? I'm betrothed to my husband, right? And if, like, are we supposed to have sexual relations? Because that's kind of against the rules, right? How is this going to work out? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child to be born with to you will be called holy. He will be set apart. He will be the Son of God. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will someday rule the nations? Yes! Shut up! (laughs) What are you talking about? Yes! Yes! He's going to be the son of God. And behold, hey, look, it's not just you, Mary. Just think back to the ages past when God has visited barren women. And what happens when he visits barren women like Sarah and Hannah and the great people, right? Samuel from Hannah and, you know, Jacob and, you know, like all, God's doing a great, amazing thing, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. God is doing, he's bringing life out of death. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, hold on a minute. Before we listen to what she says, can we just stop for a minute and think, think through what he has just told her is going to happen to her in the real moments of her life? L- listen closely to me. If she ends up getting pregnant... She is going to be called a bit of a harlot. Like everybody knows the rules. You are betrothed to Joseph. And at some point she's going to have to come and say to Joseph. I'm pregnant. And he's going to say, "Mm, I don't remember that. And so he's going to be like, the only way for you to be pregnant is if you went and you got pregnant with some other guy. And because you've done that, get out of my house. She will be publicly scorned. Guys, she will be called a whore. And it's not like she's going to be in a city like Chicago where there's all sorts of people and she can go to the town north. No, she lives in Nazareth, little old Nazareth, where everybody knows everybody and everyone's basically related to everyone. She will be an outcast of the worst 
variety. She, she will be pushed to the margins. Her family will be shamed. She's also probably going to lose her husband because, you know, Josie's not an idiot. When this word comes to him, he's not going to be, because she's going to come. She's going to say, okay, so hear, hear me out. There was an angel, and the angel came, and he announced whatever, whatever. And he's like, uh-huh, yeah, that sounds really likely, Mary, that that's the way that you got pregnant. This is a story I read a few years ago about this lady who was arrested because she had a bunch of cocaine in her purse. And her answer was, I don't know how it got there. The wind blew it in. Right? The wind just blew it in. And this is what Joseph's going to be like. Oh, right. This is, this is what happened. I, I bet. So she's going to lose her guy. She's going to lose her standing in her, in her community. And the worst way, in fact, she might even lose her life. Because uh, there is a law about this kind of thing. Deuteronomy 22. If there's a betrothed virgin. Doesn't that sound like someone we've just read about? and a man meets her in the city and he lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. The young woman, because she didn't cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, you shall purge the evil from your midst. If she accepts all of this, She will be considered this. She will be a person who needs to be purged. Everything is at stake for this 13-year-old girl who's being asked to carry the Son of God. Is it a great blessing? Yes, in God's eyes, but on the earth, it is terrible for her. So what does she say? Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Listen, if I could get you, if I could get you to write down one verse of scripture and place it on your refrigerator or your mirror or memorize in your mind that summarizes what it means to be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ, that's it. Genuine disciples of Jesus Christ say, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. They're people that no matter where God places them, they submit to him. Not because they're just, you know, oppressed, but because they genuinely believe that God knows better He's wiser, he's good, he's sovereign. And even though everything looks like a mess, they believe that God is working out all things for their good and ultimately his glory and will all work together at some point. So even though I don't see right now how it's all gonna work out and it feels like it's gonna cost me everything, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Look, as, as we finish here, they, I, I probably shared this with you before. There's a dear woman named Elizabeth Elliot. She's Jim Elliot's wife. Jim Elliot was a martyr for Christ in the 1960s, 50s, 60s. She was asked at one point to write a little bit about Mary and her reflections on this language. Here's what she said. She said, the gospel story begins with the mystery of charity. You have a young woman who's visited by an angel She's given a stunning piece of news about becoming the mother of the Son of God. And unlike Eve, whose response to God was calculating and self-serving, the Virgin Mary's answer holds no hesitation about risks or losses or the interruption of her own plans. It is an utter and unconditional self-giving. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then she carries on that image, which is so appropriate, right? Isn't that, so you've got Eve and her approach to God, which was, hey, look, and I know what you've said. I understand how you've told us to live in this garden, but I don't think it's best. You're hiding stuff from me, the good stuff, the knowledge of good and evil. And so I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to chart my own path. I'm going to make my own 
way because I know what's good for me. The results of this, of course, are the devastation of humanity. So in the garden, she holds her fist to God. And then years later, in another garden, Mary is standing there. She's, she's being invited to accept the word of the Lord. She doesn't hold her fist up and starts saying, how dare you ask me to do this, no matter what it means. She says, let it be to me as you have said, because I trust who you are. I trust what you're going to do. Here's my hand, wide open. You take me where you want me. She acts like a living sacrifice. So the question for you and for me, as we face all of the circumstances that God has placed before us providentially, as God has communicated to us with his word about how it's right to live and good and honorable to be, what's going to bring you joy and peace, what do you want to do? do you, I know it's better. Or I don't know it's better. Let it be to me as you've said. Like Mary, we didn't ask for what we've been given. God's asking of us what wasn't in our plans and certainly costs a lot. But he's asking us to open our hands and trust him. To say with her, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Let me pray, Father, I'm thankful for the joy that comes from surrender to your will. Uh, I apologize. I confess my own sinfulness in that I, well, I don't. It's so easy to fall back into the fist clenching, shaking at you, because I don't see how it's all gonna work out. I don't see how it is that you've made it happen. I don't see the future like you do. But God, I pray, I pray that for my friends here, I pray, Lord, that you would grant them the joy of surrender to your will. I pray, Lord, that they would get to see who they are in Christ and ultimately what way you, you, you know them, that, you, that they, the spirit indwelled children of God who going forward into the challenges with all that's necessary to be faithful. And ultimately, Lord, would you just remind us of your wisdom? Would you remind us of your strength and your sovereignty and your goodness, Lord? That we might take the next step of faithfulness, wherever that might be. And as we do, Lord, would you just fill us? Fill us with your spirit. Spirit, we need you so much so much we love you and we thank you for all you're gonna do in Jesus name amen thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago for more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses go to harvestbible.org tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast